0: that's what we're going to be talking about today. I want to welcome all of you, especially those of you that might be visiting with us. My name is Rob Boo. I'm the senior pastor here at Wheaton Bible Church, and we are thrilled that you are here today with us. I will be down in front, along with our prayer team, following the service. I'll be right over here, and if you're visiting, I would love to meet you, Uh, say hello to you. Now, we are in this series, Explore God. We're actually joining hundreds of churches around Chicago. That's why you see the billboards as we look at common questions people have about religion. And today, we come to perhaps the most controversial of all the questions uh, the, the one question that has caused people more contempt toward Christianity than any other question, and that is this question. How in the world could Jesus Christ be the only way to God? Isn't that the height of arrogance, narrowness, even hatred? Now I get this question. I used to uh, deeply agree with people that said, there's no way Jesus could be the only way. It's how I lived my life for a number of years. I didn't want anything to do with Christianity. I thought Christians were narrow. Christians were extreme. Christians were out of touch because of it. But God, the Holy Spirit has worked in my life. And today, I want to show you why I believe that Jesus claimed to be the only way to God is in fact true, it is is valid. And it's not arrogant, it's loving. It's not condemning, it's merciful. It's not merely exclusive, it's wildly inclusive. You see, I believe Jesus' assertion, which is pictured in the table, by the way, It's not a bad thing, it's a wonderful thing, it's a good thing, it's a beautiful thing. So would you join me as we look at Jesus' own words? I'm going to read from John chapter 14, that is the gospel of John. John was one of the disciples or apostles of Jesus. And beginning in verse 5, would you stand with me? as I read from John chapter 14 and verse 5. And immediately we bump into Thomas. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. If you're familiar with Christianity, you might know that we refer to him as Doubting Thomas. And Thomas said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going or how we can know the way. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he adds, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Philip was also one of the twelve. And Philip said, Lord, show us the way that will be enough, and that will be enough for us. Now, notice how Jesus responds. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, that would be three years of ministry. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You may be seated. Now there are two alternatives to Jesus' claim. The first alternative is Christianity is narrow and wrong. And the second is Christianity is narrow and true. I want to take both of these this morning, but I want to begin with Jesus' claim, or uh, the assertion, the alternative that it is narrow and wrong. And so what I want to do, and actually with both of these, is look at three reasons. And when it comes to this first, narrow and wrong, I'm going to also expose the weaknesses of these reasons used to argue that Christianity is both narrow and wrong. So let me start with uh, the first objection. And it runs like this. Uh, Jesus can't be the only way because all uh, beliefs are equally valid. Uh, You know, you've heard uh, people say, you know, there's a variety of different paths, but they all lead to the same destination. They all lead to God. But there's a problem with that. Because there are only three approaches to God. There is secularism, moralism, or Christianity. Christianity secularism is irreligion there's no such thing as religion moralism is religion and here you can think of all the great religions of the world uh, Judaism Islam Hinduism Buddhism even different forms of what we call uh, uh, Protestant uh, liberal Christianity and then we come to Christianity Or what we mean by Christianity is gospel-centered Christianity. So you have irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Now to say all religions are equally valid becomes a problem immediately because these are very different and they contradict one another. And let me show you. Secularism says there is no approach to God. We're talking about three different approaches to God that are contradictory. Secularism affirms there is no approach to God because God doesn't exist. To talk about an approach to God is meaningless. Moralism says, no, 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 wait, time out. Uh, God does exist, and the way we approach God is by living a certain quality of life, doing certain things to merit or to earn God's approval. Gospel Christianity comes along and says, yes, God does exist, But because of our sin, our our sinful hearts, we can't approach God on our own. We can't earn or merit God's favor. So Jesus Christ came to us and died on the cross in our place for our sin so that the moment we believe, we might find forgiveness and we might find eternal life. This is why Jesus says, In John chapter 14 and verse 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. Now I want you to understand all of these are different, but in a sense all of these are equally narrow and they all can't be right. Because they contradict each other. Uh, God doesn't exist, God does exist, and, and, and so forth. Now, I used to have a chocolate lab named Coco. And Coco was perfect. Coco was smart. Coco was good. I became convinced after about six years that Coco was a Christian. (laughs) I mean, there was no other explanation. Now, if you came to me and said my chocolate lab was a black lab... I would look at you and say, what? And if somebody else came and said, you know, that chocolate lab isn't a chocolate lab and it's not a black lab. It's a yellow lab. Uh, You know what's happening? All of us can't be true. All of our views, if you will, are equally narrow. They can't be right. Just as the views of secularism, moralism, and Christianity can't all be equally valid. Every view is narrow. So the question isn't whether Christianity is narrow. The question is whether Christianity is true, is valid. So this is uh, the first objection. Let me go on to a second. The second objection to Jesus' claim to be the only way is that there is no such thing as truth. Now, honestly, this is silly. Uh, Because what people are asserting is there is no such thing as truth except my claim that there is no such thing as truth. Right? So this is a truth claim. It's just a negation. Now this doesn't work in life. I mean, it doesn't work with parents, for example. Hey mom, hey dad, I just want you to know I hate you. I've been stealing from you. I'm going to spend the rest of my life stealing from you uh, because I'm uh, using drugs. I'm doing drugs and I'm I'm dealing drugs. But it doesn't matter because there's no such thing as truth. That doesn't work in family. It doesn't work in friendships. It doesn't work with the police much. Or or try the IRS. IRS. Well you have your truth. I you know I I I have my truth. Uh, no. That just doesn't square with reality. So when Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me." Through me, that is every bit a truth claim as the denial or the negation. Of it. Uh, Let me take this a step further. I'm gonna ask you a question. I want you to think about it. Is there anyone in the world doing something right now that you think they should stop doing, even though what they are doing they think is correct? I mean, think sex trafficking. Child slavery, a murder that's taking place right now, rape, terrorism, on and on. Is there anyone in the world who is doing something right now that you think they should stop doing even though they think what they're doing is correct? And we all answer yes. But why? Why do we answer yes? Is that not an assertion that there is a moral reality that transcends us? That transcends your opinion or my opinion or the murderer's opinion? That doesn't originate with us and doesn't uh, come from us. Isn't that what's going on here? Let me go on to the third objection. It's arrogant to claim only one way is right. Uh, We hear this all the the time today in our our culture. Uh, Jesus claims to be the only way. And so therefore Jesus is arrogant. Now, I am sympathetic to this. If by this someone means, well, the Christians I have met, are arrogant, narrow, rigid, unwelcoming, and unloving. And unfortunately, we've all had those experiences with Christians. But that's a perversion of Christianity, a distortion of Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. After all, our founder, Jesus Christ, was gentle, loving, tender, kind, merciful, and gave himself... To suffer in order to rescue the very people that had rejected him throughout history. Uh, So, analogy, just a brief analogy I've used over the years, is that we have to be very careful that we don't reject Mozart and his genius because a nine year old butchers playing one of his concertos. To say Christians are arrogant is very different to say Christianity is arrogant because we have a founder who is so incredibly humble. Now what we have here is a charge that superior knowledge of spiritual reality is arrogant. You claim to have this superior knowledge of uh, spiritual reality. Well, that's a height of arrogance, and therefore it's wrong. But stop and think about it. That fails because that, too, is a claim of superior knowledge. I mean, today we're going to watch the Super Bowl, and we're going to root against the Patriots. Is it really narrow? Is it really arrogant to say there's only one way your team can get to the Super Bowl? I mean, come on. Is it narrow to say there's, is, is it arrogant to say there's only one way I can turn on my uh, phone, I can turn on my, uh, my computer? Years ago, I owned a boat with a friend. It was a ski boat. We'd love to water ski. And one evening he was out in the ski boat and he was going fast and he hit something that had punctured a hole in the boat and the boat began to sink and he got to the side of the river and the boat sank in a couple of feet of water. All these three objections are like a boat with a hole in them. Uh, To assert that all beliefs are equally valid doesn't work because they contradict one another. Uh, To to assert there's no such thing as truth does not square with reality. Uh, To to assert that Jesus' claim to be the only way is arrogant. It isn't arrogant. It's loving if it's the only door out of the house that is collapsing around you. So uh, these are some of the claims. There's more. And some of the weaknesses of these objections. Now what I want to do is I want to go on. And I want to back up. And I'll just leave that for a moment. Because I want to move on to to the second alternative. There's only two alternatives. Either Christianity is narrow and wrong or Christianity is narrow and and right. And what I want to do is I want to dig in and look more specifically at Jesus' words here in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. And I want to give you three reasons why I believe that Jesus' assertion that I am the only way here in the second half of verse 6 is true and the first is that here jesus is claiming to be god now this is really the the foundation of of all of this um argumentation is jesus christ god or is he not either jesus was terribly right or he's terribly wrong Now, I'm not going to defend the deity of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is explain this morning Jesus' claim. I'm going to assume that not only is Jesus claiming to be God, which he certainly is, but Jesus is, in fact, God. And I want you to notice the first two words here, I am. Jesus doesn't say, I point to the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No prophet had said that. No prophet of Israel. Jesus comes along and says, I am, I am. Now I want you to see something here because what we notice is humility but not modesty. I mean, for Jesus to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life uh, demands that Jesus would leave the splendor of heaven and, and become a man and experience a life of uh, suffering and rejection, torture and death as he died on the cross as our substitute, the sacrificial lamb of Israel, bearing our sin, absorbing the wrath of God. So when Jesus asserts, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that is a statement of humility. It is not a statement of modesty. I am. This is the sixth of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. So earlier, uh, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. He has said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And now here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Humility, yes. Modesty, no. What we have here is an extreme claim to be God. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come to make extreme demands on our life. He has come to wake us up out of our spiritual slumber out of our uh, moral anarchy, uh, out of our our personal emptiness. Uh, Jesus has come to call us to action, to demand that we follow him without reservation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't get to pick and choose because I am. Oh, Jesus, I'm into you, but I really can't stand the church. No, you don't get to pick and choose. Uh, Jesus died for the church, Jesus created the church. Jesus calls us to follow him in every area of life without reservation. I am. I am. So the first reason I buy, I believe, I've been changed by the fact that Jesus is the only way because Jesus not only claims to be God, I believe Jesus is God God, and that's what we're seeing right here. Now now let me go on, let me move a little further in, in this verse here. Not only do we have a claim, but we have three promises there are three assertions I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. They are also three promises. And what Jesus is promising here points to his deity, it's totally consistent with his deity. And so, for example, promise number one, when Jesus says, I am the way, is a promise of access to God. That you can approach God through me, Jesus is saying. But not only is it a promise of access to God, get this, it's a promise of intimacy with God. So Jesus will go on in the very next verse, in verse seven, and say, if you really know me, you will know my Father. If you really know me, Jesus isn't just promising access, he's promising intimacy. And the word know that's used a couple times in verse seven is a term that describes something experiential, something intimate, something practical. Not just something sterile, something theoretical, like you know that Abraham Lincoln was a president. Jesus is here inviting us, promising us an experience with the living God. I am the way. Jesus is describing something infinitely greater uh, than even the intimacy a loving husband and wife enjoy after 25 years of marriage. Uh, When Jesus says, I'm the way, uh, Jesus is saying there's a big difference between knowing Gibson sells steaks and eating their steaks. And Jesus is inviting you to taste and see and to eat. of the Father. It's why, as we just read a few minutes ago, a, a couple of verses later, when Philip raises this question, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, well, he doesn't throw him under the bus, but he says, what in the world, Philip? You've been living with me for three, three and a half years, and you have head knowledge, you don't have heart knowledge, you don't really know who I am, you know, but you don't know. Philip is the mass of humanity who ignores this invitation. Uh, let me take it a step further. Uh, suppose during this past polar vortex that we pray we'll never visit Chicago again, that a parent was out walking outside with a child and the, the child slipped and fell into an icy river. Well, what what is that parent going to do? Well, the parent's going to do what any good parent does. The parent's going to jump in and rescue the child. When Jesus says, I am the way, Jesus is saying, I am that parent. I plunged, I not only plunged into the icy river, I died in the icy river because of your sin and your shame. I am the way. And Jesus is inviting us in to experience the depth of a father's love that would send a son to die in that river. No other religion teaches God suffered and died. Christianity alone. Is that really narrow? Secularism, if we go back to secularism up here, secularism has no categories uh, for shame and sin and, and, and guilt. So when Jesus claims to be God and Jesus invites us, promises us the way, which is access and intimacy, let me ask you a question. Is that narrow or is that wonderful? Now let's look at the second promise. I am the way and now Jesus promises I am the truth. This is a promise of meaning. Let me show you these. The way is a promise of intimacy. The truth is a promise of meaning. Now if we, all, if we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, uh, John says something that, about Jesus at the beginning that's outlandish, it's, it's crazy. Uh, John says the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus. And he's using a profound term when he uses the word word. Because in the Greek, it's the concept logos. And it was a central concept to Greek and Roman philosophy in Jesus' day and centuries before Jesus' day. And the word meant meaning and purpose in life, truth in life. And the Greeks and the Romans had spent centuries searching for meaning and, and a purpose in life. And by Jesus' day, they had concluded there is no logos, there is no truth. And John comes along in his gospel, and the very first words out of John's mouth, practically speaking, are Jesus is, or is, Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the source and the purpose of meaning. And what John is saying in John chapter 1 is there is meaning, there is direction. This world is going someplace. And Jesus says the exact same thing when he says, I am the truth in chapter 14. But Jesus is saying truth isn't an abstract concept. It's a person. It's the Savior King. And I have come to provide you with peace, contentment, purpose, direction in life. Something you cannot find on your own. Now let me make a cultural comment here. And I want you to hear me in this. Do you know why one of the main reasons our culture so emphasizes love? Romantic sexual love? today is. One of the main reasons is if we have abandoned truth. There is no truth, there is no meaning, there is no purpose. So all we have left is love, sexual love. But if there is no truth, then our love is dictated by our feelings, our self-centered feelings. And because our feelings come and go, so do our relationships, so do our commitments. You see, when love fades, relationships fade, family fades, culture fades, community fades, friendship fades, because love can't be sustained without truth, Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. I am the meaning, I am the purpose, I am the bedrock, I am the foundation. In other words, what Jesus is saying is you can have truth that loves you, that accepts you, that comes alongside, that holds your hand, that wants to fill you from the inside out. And you can have truth that is love. Money, sex, appearance, Performance, fame, may be your overriding truth in life from which you derive meaning and purpose. And you may not even, frankly, be aware of it. But none of those will love you. They will ultimately tyrannize you and hollow you. Now again, is that narrow or is that beautiful? Now let me go to the third promise in verse 6. Jesus says, I am the life. This is a promise, this is a wonderful promise of personal transformation, growth, character development, The moment you and I believe in Jesus. Uh, This is a promise. Jesus is making a promise to us. It's an assertion, but it's a promise. And and the promise is, uh, I will move into your life and I will help you. I will begin the process of helping you overcome your darkest habits. The anger, the bitterness, the lack of forgiveness. The pride in your life that you just hate. Because that that moment you say yes to me and receive me as Savior King, I will step into your life and indwell you through the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me, that's life. It's Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit uh, living in you. And when Jesus says promises, I am the life, Jesus is promising he won't abuse you. He won't oppress you. He's not going to ignore you. He's going to come alongside you. He will never let you go. And boy, is he going to change you from the inside out. True love is always active. Jesus is announcing his commitment to transform your life. He is announcing that he will be active, that he will be vigorous in growing you and changing you. He will fight for you and he will fight against you. Because his end is a complete and total makeover. So you might experience the best of life in this life and complete and total perfect life in the life to come. That's the promise for the believer in Christ. That's the wonder of the gospel. Now let me move on and let me wrap this up. Here Jesus claims to be God. Here Jesus offers us the promises of God. And the final thing I want you to see, the final reason that I deeply believe that Jesus is the way to God is because his claim is both exclusive and inclusive. So in the second half of verse 6, what does Jesus say? Let me go back. Maybe? Slowly? In the second half of the verse, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let me go back to the first century world and I'll be done. One of the paradoxes in the first century world was... The Greeks and the Romans were wide opened religiously. You could believe in a thousand different gods and goddesses and they were seemingly tolerant. But their lifestyle, their their practices, in spite of their beliefs, were narrow, rigid, and absolutely brutal. They had contempt for the poor. Nothing to do with the poor. Especially the Romans were all about military and political uh, power might makes right and you were either an insider or a barbarian yet christianity in the first century was different christianity was exclusive Uh, first century christians as all gospel-centered christians believe that jesus is the only way uh, to god yet their practices weren't brutal their practices were wide open Uh, They uh, loved people, accepted people, uh, 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 welcomed all sorts of people. They were concerned for the poor. They would go on and build orphanages and hospitals. And when the plagues came in the first century Roman Empire, while the Roman elites fled the big cities to live, The Christians stayed and took care of the poor, often at the cost of their very lives. So yes, Christianity is exclusive. But yes, Christianity is incredibly inclusive in that it's open to anyone, moral or immoral, poor or rich, educated, uneducated, Disadvantaged, advantage, it doesn't matter. Christianity is inclusive. Jesus welcomes all. Jesus says, come. Jesus Christ did not come to create a country club of insiders that would look down on outsiders. Jesus came to create a family of people who are eternally grateful and humbled by the reality that on the cross, their suffering Savior won their forgiveness and their life that is eternal. Now, if you've never done so, I want to invite you to cross the line. I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus. I want you to receive him as your Savior and Lord, not to, like Philip, disbelieve about him, but to believe in him, to depend upon him, to begin the journey of knowing Jesus in your heart. And I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Would you bow with me and let's pray? If God is speaking to you, pray with me like this. Father, thank you for loving me and sending Jesus to die for me, to die for my shame. Forgive me and cleanse me and make me new. Thank you, thank you that you accept me because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And I trust in you. Amen.